On the morning I was to be married in New York, I went to a bookstore, as I always did in moments of crisis or bliss, until all the bookstores closed and you had to seek some comfort or inspiration somewhere in the ether like a monk. There I found what I hoped would serve as an epigraph for our approaching wedding. It was from the 18th century Japanese poet Issa, the most humorous and tender of haiku makers, and it ran simply, The world of dew is a world of dew. But even so, I grasped it at once, or thought I did, in all its pregnant simplicity, its simple bow and implicit enormity. Life passes, and it's difficult, but within it, pleasures and epiphanies arise. You marry the prettiest girl you've ever met in the greatest city on earth. Don't kid yourself, but maybe you can kid yourself a bit. Years later, when I was writing Talk of the Town for The New Yorker, I would interview one of the Andrews sisters about Bing Crosby. You couldn't kid him a lot, she said warily, but you could kid him a little. It depended on the angle that he wore his hat. Life, it occurred to me, is like Bing Crosby. Its moods indicated by the pressures of the time, like that hat. That morning, the hat was on at just the right angle. Years later still, when she was pregnant, Martha, the girl I married that morning, made me promise not to go to a bookstore while she was in labor. As it happened, the labor was drawn out, and wanting to avoid an argument with the obnoxious obstetrician, I took a break during hour six and did end up in a bookstore around the corner from the hospital. It was a good move. Martha was so panicked by my absence, with the constant noise of ambulances arriving at the emergency entrance nearby, she easily imagined some tragic karmic accident that she dilated. I arrived just in time for the birth of our son, and carrying a wonderful copy of Santiana's The Sense of Beauty, which, I swear, I really did intend to read aloud to her if things had gone on any longer. But that, as I said, was years later. Actually, only a few, as older people reckon these things, but at the time, what would stretch to a decade seemed a lifetime. It was a lifetime. When I say married in New York, I know that it might sound rather like top hats and morning coats and a ceremony at St. Thomas Episcopal. In fact, on a bleak January day, we would take the five train to City Hall with a license and blood test results in hand and submit to a minute and a half long ceremony administered by an official who looked a bit like Don Amici in his guise as host of Circus of the Stars from my childhood. And so... After approximately 45 further seconds of obligation and vows, we took the subway back to the 9 by 11 basement room where we were beginning our life, a place that we had dubbed the Blue Room in honor of an old Rogers and Hart song that I was insane enough to remember and that Martha was insane enough to accept as a guide to living. The song was about a couple who choose a Blue Room, a single studio where they can start their life. Not like a ballroom, a small room, a hall room. Away from everyone else in the smallest studio in Manhattan, they were happy. The subway trip downtown was, in a way, only an extension of a trip south we had begun four months before in Canada, getting on a bus marked New York City, like something out of a 1960s comedy. My father saw us off. Fathers are supposed to give advice to young men and women leaving the provinces for the metropolis. D'Artagnan's father, in The Three Musketeers, tells him to fight duels with everyone once he gets to Paris. Sensible advice for a guy with a sword who knows how to use it. 
When Sky Masterson, you know, the hero of Guys and Dolls, leaves Colorado for New York, his father tells him that if a guy in the big city shows you a brand new deck of cards, seal unbroken, and wants to bet that when he opens it, the jack of hearts will leap out and squirt cider in your ear, don't take that bet. The jack will leap out and start to squirt. That is to say, in the big city, nobody makes an apparently crazy bet if the deck isn't already gaffed. This is, of course, a corollary to the famous advice that if you're sitting at a card table and can't figure out who the sucker is, you're the sucker. My father's advice when I left Canada for New York was simple. Never underestimate the other person's insecurity. This was excellent counsel, and what trouble I would get into came mostly from forgetting it. Everyone, even the apparently powerful, is struggling inside with a raging fear of being unloved, or at least unappreciated, an emotion only magnified by the enormity of the city. Thinking it over, decades later, I suspect my father was getting at the real point of Sky Masterson's dad's advice about not taking the bet on the squirting jacks, or its corollary, anyway. Everybody at the table may be a sucker. The guy with a gaff deck is playing with a gaff deck because he doesn't think he can win with one that isn't. Even the wise guys are most often suckers inside or feel like it. That's what makes them insecure. It is the dapper and self-contained card sharp who is the illusion of the card table or the city. My father spoke in the summer of 1980. I arrived in New York that August and the next 10 years of my life were big ones. But I was 20 when I got here, so they would have been big for me if I had spent them at a recording station in the Arctic Circle. With the special energy that we have when we first arrive in a new place, Martha and I diligently explored all the odd corners of the city. We inspected what seemed like every navigable inch of Central Park, going in and out of all the gates that Olmsted and Vaux had named poetically when they designed it with a stranger's gate up at 106th and Central Park West, having for us a special resonance. We were strangers, and we had arrived, and we dreamt of becoming citizens. <laughs> 